Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with biographer and journalist Jonah Raskin and host Steve Heilig as they discuss the strange life and mysterious death of Jack London. Today is uh, a literary day, and the topic is Jack London. Now, it's been very interesting for me um, to prepare for this because I think, like a lot of people, I hadn't read Jack London in many years. It was somebody that I read a fair amount when I was young. And as our guest says, he wrote really great dog stories. (laughs) But he also says to call them dog stories is like calling Moby Dick a whale story. And there's a lot of contradictions and really intense stories about Jack London. And so one of Jonah's previous books here, The Radical Jack London, which was edited a collection for UC Press about eight years ago, I think, 2008, something like that, um, lays out a lot of these contradictions. This is called Writings on War and Revolution, right? So this was the other side of him from the dog stories. And then there was more than that because two of my favorites that I did read long ago, one was semi-autobiographical or semi fictional mm-hmm. Martin Eden. Yeah. This is his story, in a sense, put into a novel that always stuck with me. The other one I liked and stuck with me the most, it's called John Barleycorn, Alcoholic Memoirs. This one too, I think, is, has a lot of fiction in it as well, but a lot of truth in its own story. So it's also semi-autobiographical. Mm-hmm. And these, these were my, you know, these were not so much purely fiction, but then the other one, of course, for some Bellinas people of interest too, uh, The Cruise of the Snark, A Pacific Voyage. This one has a whole chapter on surfing in it. And so, just by way of introduction, yeah. Yeah. There's a co- I have a couple of others, but we'll get to these. Um, this one. I'll just say a brief thing about him. Read this, and then we'll go into yours. So, actually, we'll, we'll say, so there's two short ones. that I've. These are the ones that I've come across more recently, once I knew I was going to do this with Jonah. One is called The Scarlet Plague. And this is a, a story of a plague hitting San Francisco, basically, 100 years ago wiping out and people living out on Ocean Beach trying to survive it. And I never knew about this one. It was extraordinary. And this one was even stranger in a way. Jack London before Adam. And this is him imagining himself, his ancestors back in the prehistoric days. And he's basically, he never says the, mm-hmm. the types, but he's <clears throat> an early human. There are Cro-Magnon people around or Neanderthals and they're fighting each other. And he goes into this, this imagination. So it just gives an idea of the breadth of what he was writing. So John, or Jack Griffith London, was born in San Francisco in 1876. His father, William Cheney, an itinerant astrologer, deserted him when he was a baby, and soon after his mother, Flora Wellman, a spiritualist and music teacher, married John London, from which he took his name. His early years were marked by poverty, and London was dependent on libraries for his education. It was here that he began to foster his burgeoning love of reading. From the age of 14, he turned his head to a variety of things, tried his hand at a variety of things, excuse me, both legal and illegal, in order to scrape together a living. He gained employment as a seaman, took jobs in a factory and a mill, raided oyster beds, and participated in the gold rush of 1897. In 1894, he was arrested and imprisoned for vagrancy. These experiences formed the basis for a number of his subsequent works, and it was at this time that he began to develop an interest in socialism. From 1898, 
Lennon dedicated himself to writing, and his early stories appeared in Oberlin Monthly, Atlantic Monthly, and his first collection of stories, The Son of the Wolf, appeared in 1900. This, like The Call of the Wild, the novel that finally brought him to recognition, he based on life in the far north. The Sea Wolf, White Fang, and Burning Daylight further secured his reputation. Many of the strong female characters that appear in his novels were based on Charmian Kittredge, his second wife. London also wrote a number of nonfiction works on socialism, including The People of the Abyss, The War of the Classes, and the semi-autobiographical work of Martin Eden, and a travel book, Cruise of the Snark. During the final years of his life, he suffered acutely from alcoholism and died from renal favor in 1916, although for many years, rumors circulated that he, in fact, committed suicide. So that's the capsule. Yeah. And so the new book, Booklet, Yes. By Jonah Raskin is called Mysteries of Jack London, Socialist, White Supremacist, Anti-Semite, and Lover of Beauty. (laughs) Contradictions, right? Yeah, what combination. Sorry. So to talk about this, and we'll go on from there, please welcome Jonah Raskin. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... uh, I believe that in this, in this new booklet, I have said all the things that are really hard to say about Jack London and that a lot of people don't want to hear and they, they'd rather close their ears to, to some of those things, but it seemed like we're all adults, we can handle it. <laughs> so, you, you know, why not, why not say all of it? Yeah, and he was, he was a great lover of beauty and he, he, he was a socialist and I, I, I would say he was... He was also a, a white supremacist, and uh, he believed that Anglo said the Anglo. He believed in something that c- called race. I don't know. People don't talk about race that much anymore. He thought it had a scientific basis. He read Darwin. He was one of the uh, social Darwinians, and he believed in the survival of the fittest. And and uh, he was writing back in the days when the British Empire was at its height, and he thought, well, the British are ruling other people because it's in their blood and they're, Anglo, they're Anglo-Saxons and they're able to triumph over people because of something in their blood. Yeah. Superior. <laughs> so, but on the other hand, he was very fascinated with, uh, you know, what's called the other. He was, he was fascinated with people from other uh, races and ethnic groups and different parts of the world and and misfits. Uh, you know, when he went to Hawaii, he went to see lepers, probably because he himself felt as though he was an outsider and an, and an outcast and 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 didn't really belong any place. And why do you think that was? Probably because of his his origins. Uh, you you read the description of him that his uh, his mother Flora Wellman was pregnant. She was living with uh, Mr. Cheney. Uh, Mr. Cheney uh, asked her to have an abortion, and she refused. And he left her. And then she tried to commit suicide by putting a gun to her head and pulling the trigger, and then taking. Uh, a dose of wine with laudanum in it, um, and then being taken off in a half-mad state to a uh, doctor's office in in San Francisco. So that was in 1876. She wasn't uh, well enough to take care of her child, to, to John Griffith. 
Cheney, and she gave him to an African-American woman named Virginia Prentice to raise. So Jack London grew up in an African-American household with among African-Americans. He used to call later on in life, he would call himself a white pickaninny. So, <laughs> so uh, he didn't know any of this. He didn't really know about the existence of John Griffith Cheney, uh, uh, what, is, what happened with his mother until he was in his 20s when a friend of his, uh, <laughs> who was afraid that Jack was going to marry his sister, <coughs> clued him into his origins, said, you know, you, you're illegitimate. I mean, when he was a kid people, uh, uh, at school, other kids called him bastard, but they were being literal. I mean, because rumors got around, he didn't really, he didn't know. Um, so when he was about twenty, he he, uh, he was told that his real father, his biological father, Cheney, was living in Chicago. He got his address. Uh, he didn't give his own home address to for reply, but a friend of his address, and he wrote a couple letters and. And uh, Cheney wrote back and said, uh, I lived with your mother. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. She slept around with a lot of guys. Uh, she was nutty. Uh, I was impotent at the time. I'm an old man. I, don't, don't bother me. I don't have any money. I can't help you. <laughs> so this is really before Jack London had uh, done it very much writing at all. Some writing, he kept journals and notebooks, and um, there's one. There's only one letter I know of that he wrote after he got the letters from the person he thought was might have been his father, in which he said, "I'm really depressed." And the next thing that he did was to go to uh, the Yukon to prospect for gold. So you mean get out of town, go away. Uh, I would say, you know, a kind of therapy, uh, intuitive, instinctive kind of therapy to do. And that experience up there was really kind of the breeding ground or the seed of some of his most famous works, the early works that made him famous. Yes, exactly, yes. So to, to write about uh, white, white people, uh, Californians, people, there, the, there was the gold rush there, and so he's writing about the... The Gold Rush. He's writing about Native Americans and Indians. Um, dogs. Uh, <laughs> yes, he's right. Yeah. Wolves, actually. Yeah, and, wolves and, and dogs. dogs. Yeah. So I mean, it's also I think it's indicative of Jack London's thinking that uh, he wrote two versions of what's probably his best-known short story, which is called "To Build a Fire." A man in the, what he called the Northland who is there in the cold and he wants to survive. And in one version, in the first version, he builds a fire and he succeeds. And then in the second version, which he wrote about five years later, he doesn't, he can't build, the fire doesn't get going and he dies there. So he, he was kind of both very abulent and optimistic and also very deeply pessimistic, I think you're suggesting, because he... I mean, he wrote this book about this pandemic that wipes out the human race. Well, and his uh, Charmian, his second wife, at the end of his life or after it said, his life was a constant battlefield. 
and, yes. and a lot of that was internal once he got right. past the... So he wrote these books, the, the Alaskan books, he, let's go on, you know, he becomes famous. And at this time, this is pre-radio, television, internet, all that stuff. It was newspapers and books were out there. And he was, you know, say Mark Twain before him. Yes. And, and then him and then maybe Ernest Hemingway were the only writers in America that were that. The presence was so huge. Everybody knew who they were. He right. got wealthy at a yes. relatively young age, right? And yes. He, but he kept writing. So he, he lived for 40 years. He died 100 years ago this year. That's the, this is the centennial, 1916. 40 years, he wrote, what, 50 books? Yes, correct. 50 yes. books in 40 years. And oh. considering that he didn't really get them going, that was really in 20 years, you know? Yeah, And yes. so some people criticize that he was too prolific for various reasons. But, um, I mean, he was, it was astonishing what he was able to do considering all the turmoil and travels and conflict that was going on. In his life, it seems to me, right. He, you know, I think he said, uh, "I'd I'd rather be a meteor that streaks out in the sky than I'd rather be ashes than dust." Um, uh, and he Better to burn said, out than know, fade I, away. Yeah, I, I'm afraid I've always been an extremist. Yes. He said, "No, right. so I mean, not really doing anything by halfway measures of, yeah, in." Uh, 50 books in, a, in about 18 or 19 years. Yeah, so he's, and he's publishing three and four books a year on a variety of different subjects. So he did have magazines, and he was writing uh, for, for the magazine publication and the magazine audience, so he knew about serialization, uh, that he had to uh, begin and end uh, like a, 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 an episode uh, to hold people's interest because then they, to get them to come back and buy the magazine the next week. So he was very, and you can could, you could see that in The Seawolves. He's very savvy about that. And also he's very savvy about the economics of, of publishing. So he would publish in a magazine and then he would publish in hardback and then he'd publish in paperback. And then, I mean, he, then he was also at the beginning of the movie industry and then he would, and then he would sell the movie rights to, to his books. So this all from a man who also <clears throat> struggled very much in the early years, working tough jobs, both in Oakland and in the up north and then on the San Mateo coast and who became a committed socialist. Who was actually yes. by the time he was twenty was out lecturing on the streets and drawing big crowds. Right. But he also was a some would say a very successful capitalist. Um, yes. His writing too, right? So there's like the one of the first yeah, yeah. big conflicts that seemed to have haunted him for the rest of his life. Yeah, I would say when I um, I was talking in the library in in the town of Sonoma last week, and uh, people. A number of people said, well, how could that be? How could he be a socialist and also be making a lot of money and buying lots of land? Because he, he bought land in Glen Ellen, hand over fist. He started by buying about 130 acres, and by the end of his life, he had over 1,000 acres, and he was building the Wolf House. You can see the ruins of Wolf House, and by today's standards, it would have been millions and millions of dollars, and you know, wanting to live like a uh, one of the robber barons of, of that time. Uh, servants. He had servants. He has an he has an essay called "The House Beautiful," in which he says, "I yeah, I have to have servants because I'm a writer. I have a lot of writing to do. I can't be 
I can't be bothered with having to clean house. So there was that conflict that went on throughout. I mean, the yeah, the I'd one that so. you edited here was the radical Jack London. Um, with respect to some of these conflicts, yes. you, got social, you got white supremacist, anti-Semitic, but also there was a very conflicted relationship with the women as well. He was yes. opposed to women's suffrage right, for a long time, didn't think they should get the vote. And, and then he did? And then he did, yes, because he thought, because he had his problem with alcohol, yeah. and he thought if women had the vote, that women would outlaw alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's some <clears throat> strategic so, I mean, thinking, well, you know? Yes, and, and, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, um, so, and I, you know, I, I always thought that if I was been alive during Jack London's time, I would have wanted to be invited to Beauty Ranch, as he called it, which uh, Emma Goldman, the Russian Jewish socialist, uh, said it called it Dreamland, you know, where he's kind of living this sort of fantasy life and where he's inviting uh, all kinds of friends. People are translating his work. He's inviting. Uh, the, the members of the industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies. Uh, his his stepsister is running the place. Uh, he arranges with San, the, the warden at San Quentin so that prisoners can come and work at his place. And they're out of the prison for the day and they're getting fresh air and sunlight, but, the, but he also doesn't have to pay them, yeah. you know? So, I mean, the guy was hustling every, you know, he's hustling. I knew Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman. Jack London was out hustling them. I mean, he, he, had, he had insurance on Wolf House, but he didn't pay any of the premiums because he, he let them use his name to advertise the company. Or he, he had a Victrola, um, uh, which he used to play uh, records, and he didn't pay for the Victrola because the company, the Victrola company, also used his name uh, to, to sell their products. And he, he modeled suits, and he sold cigarettes, and... Um, so he wasn't really, he made a lot of money, but I would say he wasn't really wealthy because he spent every single penny that he got. Buying land, uh, he had a, he, he loved technology. If he was alive today, he'd be on the internet, he'd have smartphone, computer. He had a dictaphone, you know, prim primitive recording device. He had, a, he had a telephone in his house. He had uh, his own telegraph machine in the house. Uh, he had his own fire truck, um, which didn't do him any good. Right. <laughs> so he, but he remained, at least verbally, a committed socialist. Absolutely, yes. Right? He talked about it. He went on lecture tours. There, yes. In one of these, there was a, a story of him being at Harvard and giving a lecture and being yes. involved with people who then, you know, invited him to parties afterwards. It sounded like, you know, a, a famous author reading kind of thing, you know, right. where he said the revolution is coming. But then later at the end, when he was fading and not feeling well, he had that that kind of bitterness that revolutionaries often has when, it, when their dreams don't come true. Yes. He talked right. about that he had been a failure in that regard. Well, he ran for mayor of Oakland as a, a socialist twice and, and didn't campaign. Mm -hmm. 
So he, because <laughs> he was doing too many other things, and he didn't get a whole lot of votes. Yeah. Um, Even though you said he, he looked like Marlon Brando's older brother. Right? Very striking, looking yeah, very yeah. handsome. You know, uh, um, he did a lot of things for the Socialist Party, a lot of speaking, a lot of traveling around, giving lectures, but he said that he never actually attended a single Socialist Party meeting. I mean, he was the great celebrity. He was like probably probably the most famous um, uh, American socialist. Trotsky read him. Trotsky loved his work. Lenin read, read his books. Um, Lenin's uh, wife, uh, Kripskaya, was reading uh, Jack London to, to V.I. Lenin right the day that he died. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the Iron Heel, I don't know if you mentioned the Iron Heel, you know, his book about a dictatorship that comes to the United States that was uh, not well received when it was published about 1908, but then uh, with the coming of fascism, it became an international bestseller. People all around the world knew the Iron Heel, that Jack London was uh, a visionary and he'd, you know, it's it's really, uh, I think I read it a great deal, or I studied it at the time of the Bush administration. <laughs> and there's, in, in the Iron Heel, there's, there's the curtailment of civil rights and civil liberties. There's mass spying on citizens. Um, there's the whole, the end of eroding of privacy, the installment of the police state. And there, it was an influence on Orwell's writing too, wasn't it? Right, yeah, 1984. Right. And then on, and on Sinclair Lewis, who wrote a book about the coming of fascism to the United States that was called It Can't Happen Here. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're America. You know, we'll, we'll never go the, the way of Germany or, or, uh, or Italy. Never Trump, yeah. <laughs> um, so there were a couple kinds of backlashes, though. I mean, even in his own life, um, there were people who got really upset at him for all this, right? Weren't you? I think you wrote in the introduction to one of these to hear that newspaper editors were calling for his arrest and deportation. Yeah, get rid of this guy uh-huh. because he he had so sometimes he believed in electoral change and running for office and democratic socialism, kind of like Bernie Sanders. And at other time, in, in 1905, 1906, he gave a lecture called Revolution, which was later published as an essay called Revolution, in which he said that uh, people should take up arms and seize the means of production by, by force. Um, and Mark Twain said, said, hey, Jack, you better watch out, because maybe some of the masses will go up to your place in Glen Ellen and now... <laughs> And seize your stuff, you know. Want to appropriate your your property? But there wasn't any real action taken against him ever of any note. Uh, editorials. There were lots of editorials in new, newspapers uh, calling for his arrest, uh, calling for censorship of Jack London, uh, of not publishing his works. Um, when he moved to Glen Ellen, there were people in the neighborhood who didn't like the idea of a socialist living there, and so there was a real friction between him and and, and neighbors. Yeah. So, yeah. so as he aged a bit, so he, he only made it to forty, but 
Right. Did he slow down in his his uh, activism and writing? You know, in the last decades. Well, partially, his moving to <coughs> Glen Ellen. How old was he when he did that? The, about. 1905, so he still had a, another 11 years to go. Almost 30 years. Uh, so that was partially uh, getting away from socialism and wanting to become an, a farmer, an organic farmer. Yeah. And growing, you know, but raising. He still, he still wrote a lot, though. He still, he still wrote The Iron Heel. He still, um, uh, he still lectured about socialism. Um, Absolutely. And he he uh, loved to travel, which he seemed to have done up, not the last few years maybe, but he, he started as a young man. He was basically uh, trying out life as a hobo, as a vagabond. Yes. He went across the country and, and actually did that. Right. The way he, he and you both wrote about it in some ways <laughs> was very like a precursor to, say, Jack Kerouac on the road. And that right. kind of thing. Same kind of, kind of romance of the road trying to be free of, you know, mainstream. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, uh, Jack London uh, traveled across the country as a hobo when he was a teenager, and then years later he wrote an account of it called The Road, and Jack Kerouac read the book and, and called his book On the Road and, and said that he wanted to be an adventurer in the, the manner of, uh, of Jack London. Yeah. You know? and, and Jack London kept traveling after that. Quite a bit. He went overseas. Uh, to yeah, well, he was traveling until the end. Really, he um, uh, he was he went to Hawaii a lot. So he wasn't always at uh, Beauty Ranch. Uh, he he would um, he, he would spend a good part of every year. Well, so you mentioned surfing and you know, going surfing in Hawaii, and getting to know Hawaiian Hawaiian culture. Uh, immersing himself in Hawaiian culture and reading Carl Jung and de and starting to play around with with uh, Jungian archetypes. Yeah. So these travels and this introspection psychologically didn't really help him with the uh, white supremacism and anti-Semitism <laughs> and misogyny. Really, I mean, with the, what, did he, he was traveling around. Was he he was able to retain his prejudices though through all that or make him worse? Um, <laughs> If there was, if Jack Lennon was here right now and there was, say, someone from Japan here, he would probably be very cordial. Um, I mean, there are places where he writes essays about, uh, about Asia. The Japanese and the Chinese are going to, they're, they're, the yellow, he called it the yellow peril. The Japanese and the Chinese are going to gang up on us and, they're, and together the, the brown people and the yellow people are going to attack the white people. So we better do something about that. Um, he was very concerned about that, but then um, and there was letters he wrote. To, to, he wrote there was an editor of a Japanese newspaper uh, who wrote to him about 1910 and said, "What can we do, like to you know, to foment friendship between the races?" And he says, "Well, we have to. The two people from both of our countries have to learn to live with one another and appreciate our differences." So. He, he, he could say that too. Contradictions. Every place you learn, you look in Jack London, you're going to see contradictions. No. Uh, you allude, I think, in, in one of these two, the, the psychological concept of splitting. Oh. Is, you know, basically, you have to retain these differences and contradictory impulses inside you. 
whether right. you resolve them or not. And you know, it seems to me that in order to actually read him and enjoy him, we have to do that too in some ways. <laughs> Yeah, because you know a lot of great stuff in here, but then you'll come across something really offensive maybe in there as well. So, yes, um, John Keats, the English Romantic poet, had a concept called negative capability. The, the ability to hold two opposing ideas in your head without reaching after fact and and uh, then F. Scott Fitzgerald said that the test of a, ver- a, fir- a really first class mind was the ability to hold opposing ideas in your in your head at the same time. So uh, he 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 did have that he did have that ability. Probably enabled him to write some really great fiction. You're listening to a conversation with Jonah Raskin and Steve Heilig. On the subject of of anti-Semitism, he did have, before, in between his first and his second wife, he had a romantic interest with a woman named Anna Stronsky, who is Jewish and Russian and a socialist and a friend of Emma Goldman. And she and her family lived in uh, San Francisco, and Jack became, met, met Anna at a socialist party lecture. And, and uh, got to know her, and he wrote a story which he, he sent to her, and it was about a Jewish tailor. And uh, the, the character is um, mercenary and concerned with money all the time, and he sent it to Anna, and Anna wrote back and said, I think you're stereotyping Jews. As they All Jews don't you know, haggle and barter about money. And uh, and Jack, you know, wrote back and said, "I was teaching the guy how to speak English. You know, <laughs> don't attack me." Or or later on, uh, he when he got accused of anti-Semitism, he said, and this is a direct quote: "Well, some of my best friends are Jews." You know, so he was a pioneer in some way. <laughs> yes, he's kind of part Bernie Sanders, part Donald Trump. Right. <laughs> Some, some of both. So, um, and he was also, you know, he was also a war correspondent. He was a, a really first-class war. He covered the Russian-Japanese War, nineteen oh five, and he I, he's the first war reporter I know to understand, kind of, to put himself in the story. And to, to write about the difficulties of writing about war because the, the, the military uh, authorities don't want the truth to be told about what's going on at the battlefield. So and he wrote those for William Randolph Hearst at the, at the Examiner. Like they were like front page uh, stories and you know, what was happening and, and a lot of various new things about war and... He said, "War nowadays is like it's long distance. It's, we have huge guns that are sending shells like a mile or two miles away. You don't see the enemy, oh, like today, you know." So more so, yeah. Psychological. He called himself a psychological seer. Well, he was. You mentioned he put himself into it, and I think uh, he said in here somewhere that. Um, 
he was labeled, I think, by Kevin Starr, the state historian, a classic California narcissist. <laughs> and that everything yeah. he wrote, somehow he got himself in there and it was about him. And he admitted to this, I guess, that, you know, this was part of his entire orientation, trying to work out his own stuff through all these. Yeah, he was, he was trying, definitely trying to work out his stuff. Um, I did talk to Kevin Starr recently. He felt like in his early book, he was too harsh on Jack. You know, he should have given him more credit. Uh, well, I was going to say, you know, we talked about backlash in his life. So afterwards, he died 100 years ago. It seems there was quite a backlash, a reassessment. There often is when somebody very famous, whatever yeah. art they do, yes. they die. And then all of a sudden people start coming and say, well, it wasn't that great. You know, and here's all the problems. Now, Jack Lennon obviously gave him a lot of fuel yes. for saying that. Right. But wouldn't you say that his critical reputation after his death really kind of, uh, you know, yeah, the other way? It declined, yes. Um, the only place where it didn't decline was what they called the Soviet Union. Okay. I mean, so, <laughs> I mean, the Russians published him. They didn't pay any royalties or copyright. But he was the, for a long time, he was one of the most popular uh, U.S. authors in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. uh, a number of years ago, there was a group of Russians who came to Sonoma County and and went to the the, the Jack London State Park and visited Wolfhouse and they said, yeah, I, I talked to them. Yeah, we all were raised on on Jack London, mm -hmm. but only on certain kind of Jack London. Yeah. You know, mostly the dog stories in the Arctic, and and somebody showed them the John Barleycorn and they said, oh, we ne this has never been translated into Russian. We never heard of this. You know, so very selective. What would you say about his, I mean, the influencer that just, you know, about his alcoholism? It seems a real theme for him. It was, you know, lifelong and contributed mm -hmm. to his early death. I mean, was this, I mean, it was common, it still is, but um, it seemed to have really been a key part of his life, the struggle. When his stepfather had was farming, he, he, and he was about five or six years old, his mother would fill up a bucket with beer and he would walk out to the pasture to deliver the beer to his stepfather who was plowing the fields and, and stop and taste the beer. And so he was drinking from a very early age, which he describes in, in John Barleycorn. I, I mean, I think it's common these days for famous people to write about their either their alcoholism or their drug addiction or, or the various programs that they go into. So there's an, another way that, that Jack London was really a pioneer. And, uh, so he was trying to give up drinking, and he's writing a book about his problems with alcohol, but then he's also drinking at the same time that he's writing the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the primary themes of Martin Eden, maybe the most autobiographical novel, yeah. is the, the hardest thing for him was dealing with fame and fortune. Mm. You know, that he made, yes. it, made it young, was hugely successful at least, you know, in terms of his reputation and financially, and in the book, he ends up killing himself for that reason. Yes. And he apparently did, in real life, more than once try that, at least. Um, he did attempt suicide uh, uh, several times. There's one of the times that he describes in John Barleycorn where he says he was, he writes about his own anxiety, he calls it anxiety. He says, I've got a lot of anxiety, I'm, I have the blues, I'm depressed. So probably there was some self-medicating that was going on there. Um, 
Uh, he did like to smoke hashish. He and his friend George Sterling. No, so poet, yeah, writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so alcohol probably was helped him to deal with his, you know, his mood swings or his depression, and probably also exacerbated them. On the note, uh, indulge me with this, and I was glad to see in the intro here, you, you recommended this as well. Martin Eden, the very last. Oh, fantastic um, Harding. So this is his story of, you know, Oakland becoming famous, making it big, and yeah. struggling with this. What does it mean? Every time he got more success, he would say, well, I wrote that a long time ago. <laughs> it was done. And now everybody's talking about great is, and I'm getting money. And in the book, at least, he can't, he can't, resolve this contradiction and he goes out on a ship on a uh, voyage in the sea and the the very end it's just a page here so the will to live he thought disdainfully vainly endeavoring not to breathe the air into his bursting lungs well he would have to try a new way he filled his lungs with air filled them full the supply would take him far down he turned over and went down head first swimming with all his strength and all his will. Deeper and deeper he went. His eyes were open, and he watched the ghastly, phosphorescent trails of the darting Bonita. As he swam, he hoped they would not strike at him, for it might snap the tension of his will. But they did not strike, and he found time to be grateful for this last kindness of life. Mm. Down, down he swam, till his arms and legs grew tired and hardly moved. He knew that he was deep. The pressure on his eardrums was a pain, and there was a buzzing in his head. His endurance was faltering, and he compelled his arms and legs to drive him deeper until his will snapped and the air drove from his lungs in a great explosive rush. The bubbles rubbed and bounded like tiny balloons against his cheeks and eyes as they took their upward flight. Then came pain and strangulation. This hurt was not death, was the thought that oscillated through his reeling consciousness. Death did not hurt. It was life, the pangs of life, this awful suffocating feeling. It was the last blow life could deal him. His willful hands and feet began to beat and churn about spasmodically and feebly. But he had fooled them in the will to live that made them beat and churn. He was too deep down. They could never bring him to the surface. He seemed floating languidly in a sea of dreaming vision. Colors and radiance surrounded him and bathed him and pervaded him. What was that? It seemed a lighthouse, but it was inside his brain, a flashing bright white light. It flashed swifter and swifter. There was a long rumble of sound, and it seemed to him that he was falling down a vast and terminal stairway, and somewhere at the bottom he fell into darkness. That much he knew, he had fallen into darkness, and at the instant that he knew, he ceased to know. Beautiful passage, isn't it? Yeah, but it's about... It's about death. Suicide. Yeah, he makes suicide seem very attractive. Beautiful. It's an, it's an aesthetic experience. <laughs> so how did he die? the end what was going on and how did that come about uh well his his uh, w second wife charmian wrote a uh there's there's various ways to end your life i mean you know like i mean there's his mother's way you put a gun to your head and you pull the trigger or you can have a lifestyle that that is um uh, guaranteed to end your life quickly. Yeah, slow so, motion suicide. Yes. Yeah. He so uh, um, 
or Philip Roth says, you know, there's a, you know, consciously choosing to end your life is different than committing suicide, but it's maybe the same end. You know, so every, so Charmian said that he had a suicidal lifestyle, that he was drinking when his doctor said, you better not drink or you're going to, you know, your kidneys are going to fail you. He's writing, he's, he's still writing all the time. He's smoking cigarettes. Uh, Charming goes into the bedroom at the uh, at night. He's in bed. Uh, he's had a cigarette in in his between his uh, lips, and he falls asleep. And the cigarette is rolled out and burned a hole in the in the uh, pillowcase. Um, uh, his favorite food was uh, basically raw duck. I mean. Um, <laughs> So uh, he just is like just totally. He's a workaholic. He's an alcoholic. He's dependent on on tobacco. Um, he's gone. He's he's going to Hawaii, and he's just pushing himself and pushing himself over the edge. Um, I don't remember if it's in here or someplace. I I kind of list all of the. Uh, every single ailment that he had. It's like a, a whole paragraph of, mm-hmm. uh, of different things. And but still writing. Absolutely. So that's probably the writing kept him alive as long as it did. Uh, there's, a, there's a place in, in The Call of the Wild we talk, he talks about um, ecstasy, a feeling of ecstasy, and he says it's like that's what writers have when... They're they're at the peak of their creativity. That that's that's what he had when he when he wrote uh, the Call of the Wild and the Sea Wolf and and Martin Eden and a lot a lot of his great books. So he died at home. He died. Yes, he did. He did. There were four doctors there, mm-hmm. uh, and the doctors gave uh, four different. Reasons why he died. So, uh, <laughs> he was in pain because of liver kidney failure. So one of his doctors was prescribing both morphine and heroin, and he was uh, he was giving himself injections. So one of the doctors thought that he was in a state where he didn't really he wasn't able to calibrate anymore. <coughs> you know, exactly how much he needed to give himself, and he gave himself an overdose, accidentally. How about children? He had two children from his first marriage. Uh, Were they close at all? They had a very emotionally stormy relationship. So I I know Jack London's great, great granddaughter. Tarnell Abbott, who lives in Richmond, and follows the, um, the his legacy of of socialism mm-hmm. and activism. Like she was, she lived at Occupy in, in Oakland and saw the police uh, coming into the plaza and the rest, and said, "Oh, this is the Iron Heel." Mm-hmm. No. One of his daughters wrote a book about him, right? His older, yes, his older daughter Joan wrote a wrote a really fascinating book about an unconventional biography. Here's the daughter writing about the father. Yes, mm-hmm. and was it 
It's a good, it's a really good book. It's a very good book, yeah. I mean, she understood a lot about him, like, for example, that a lot of the stories that he told about himself were actually things that people told to him, but he absorbed them and adopted them for himself. He's a writer. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we know what writers do. <laughs> so there's a great passage in the book called The Road where he was writing about his hobo experiences uh, where he describes uh, one of the way, reasons or how he became a writer where he said he needs to, he's traveling across the country, he doesn't have any money, he doesn't have any, no people, uh, he, he has to get. He has to bum for food and a place to sleep. So he he knocks on a door and he he says, "I I didn't know what I was going to say until somebody answered the knock on the door and I sized them up and I had to figure well what it what can I say that this person is going to give me a piece of pie or a glass of milk or something and that that was the that was how he learned how to tell a story. Mm. <laughs> no, kind of a sing for your supper thing." Absolutely. So he was great on sincerity. He was in touch with his feelings, whatever they were in the moment. But uh, as for the truth, he never, ever publicly said, uh, told the story of his birth and his origins, which must have been there in the back of his head someplace. He never, he, you know, he never, never described that. So, in the area in Sonoma where his final resting place was, there is something of a tourist industry built up around. Yes, right? exactly, yes. Um, how does a, a book like this get received there? Oh, they won't carry it there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you and I both write for a great little paper up there called the Anderson Valley Advertiser yes, yes. sometimes. And uh, there was a passage in there that um, I think our editor, Bruce, put in there about you being you know, verbally assaulted at a reading or something by somebody who said you were uh, tarnishing his reputation by publishing this kind of thing. Um, well, uh, there's, a, uh, there's the Jack London Foundation. Or w when I started out working on the uh, the radical Jack London, I thought that I was going to have to get permission from the estate in order to reprint his articles. and So I went to see the uh, the guy in charge of everything, uh, Milo Shepard. And while well, Milo said, um, oh, it's all in the public domain, so, which I was glad to hear then because I didn't have to worry about getting permission. And I said, well, Milo, what do you think about Jack? He said... John London was his real father. He was a great writer. Uh, he loved his wife. He died a natural death. End of story. That that is what the 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 that's the that's the official story. So every year, the Jack London Foundation has a dinner in uh, Sonoma. Uh, so that has happened in January. I was there, uh, and I happened to be there with a friend of mine uh, from Santa Cruz who's written about Jack London, um, whose name I can't remember right now. Uh, so this guy comes up to me, you know, my friend from Santa we're sitting, you know, they have named our names on this table, and this guy comes up to me. I don't, I don't even recognize him. He, so he, he points a finger at me, and he says, 
you're a communist. You can't sit at my table. <laughs> and I, I laughed. I thought, well, this guy is not. Well, what do you mean? Is con- <laughs> so, but, so then my, then my friend, uh, 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 you know, comes over and, and he, he, he says, who are you calling a communist? And then, and then and this guy, uh, uh, Stuart, uh, says, uh, what are you, a faggot? So then my, then my friend says, you want to step outside? I'm going to punch you in the mouth. And so I say, like, please, you know, except, you know, step it, please, guys, come on. Poor guy's been dead 100 years, right? Um, so. Now, why do you think this is, though? Why does it arouse? I mean, like I was alluding to that there's an industry about this. Yeah, they don't want yeah, tarnish. yeah. So, but is it also just people who are what you've called the wolf pack, the people who are intensely loyal to his work. They're totally loyal to him, his, his re- reputation. They don't want it to be tarnished. I mean, they, what, why, um, oh, a friend of mine from back, from a teacher's at a college in Maine, she was here and she went out to Jack London Park and, and, and wandered around and, and there were docents there and, and the docent was giving her the official story and, and she said, Wait a minute, he died at 40 of, you know, natural death? Well, you know, something else must be going on. You know, what, what are you not telling me? And, 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 well, the docents are not all the same. Some of them tell a more complica- complex, nuanced narrative, and some of them, uh, it's just the, the very simplistic story. So it's the luck of the draw when you get there. But they, they uh, the state no longer supports the, the park. It no longer funds it. So they're continually raising money to keep it opened. You have to pay to get in. I mean, if you what? Uh, and for years, when I would go there and I'd go hike to the top of Sonoma Mountain, um, there was nobody local. All the people were from France, Japan, Germany. People who'd read Jack London and. You, know, you have to have a good product, to, you know, to draw people to the park. You have to have. Uh, are somebody going to want, want to come there and see a place where a guy was a white supremacist? Well, maybe Donald Duke or David Duke would, but... <laughs> Donald too. Um, <laughs> so how about just on the literary level? I mean, I don't know if you follow this, but is, you know, I don't, in my impression is, and I could be wrong, he's not read nearly as much as he was even when I was a kid. Right. I mean, that's true for, I mean, authors have a lifespan in some way. Yeah. But he lasted yeah. a long time. He was long dead yes. when I was reading him. Yeah. But, it, I mean, is that, is he going to fade into obscurity? Uh, probably not. No, probably never fade into obscurity. So you, you, you were also asking him earlier about his reputation. So it was hard to get the state of California to designate the land, like, uh, Charman, when she was still alive, she wanted to give the land to the state of California. So the, the, the state legislature knew that Jack London had been a socialist, and they said, why are we going to have a park of a guy who was a socialist? Oh, no. You know, at near the height of, well, not the height, but this was, you know, still the Red Scare and get the commies and all that sort of thing, and people didn't really make much of a, Socialist, communist, they're all the same thing in those days. So he wasn't read um, 
because from well when I went to I went to back college back east Columbia College my professor said well he he wrote for a mass audience uh, for the magazines to make money he was a Californian he was a socialist why should we bother reading him he had all those east class east coast like kind of like snobby but those literary. aren't really about the quality of the writing itself those no are, those are biases from other things so right these I'm are wondering people. in the kind of academic literary world or in schools is he still considered he's still considered a, a great American writer and a, a great American writer but what overall what's happened in the last 40 years is that uh, the dead white men are have been mm, their work in the anthologies has been shortened and and the anthologies have been changed so that there's more writing by people of color and women and which is all good to for diversity absolutely yes so like mary austin who wrote land of little rain yes mary austin was a good friend of jack london's and Although he did make fun of her <laughs> because she liked to collect Indian things and sometimes wear a headdress and, you know, so. <laughs> so one of the, both in your book and the other ones I've read, you know, and we alluded to this with Jack Kerouac, that he was really a proto-beat in a sense in, in both his writing and his life in yeah. some way. So yes. I want to switch just a little bit for yeah. a few minutes and then we'll have some open Okay. Time. So your previous book. American Scream, Allen Ginsberg's Howl and the Making of the Beat Generation. Mm -hmm. This is, by a lot of people, you know, there's, there's another person that there are dozens of books about Ginsberg, but this is considered one of the very best here. So um, do you see that legacy in, in, in uh, say, Kerouac and Ginsberg? Uh, I would say, yeah, definitely from, from Jack London to Jack Kerouac and kind of the sort of male persona and and the traveling and and experience and the identification with people who are down and out and who are on the bottom uh this this sort of the uh, if you're beat down then there's a kind of beatific sense that you that you have it seemed like ginsburg too was somebody whose art was foremost to him but he was also one of the most politically engaged of poets. Absolutely. Yeah. All this is whole life. Different, whole life. different direction than London, <laughs> probably, in terms of, you know, but, you know, somebody who, he was talking about socialism <laughs> and Ginsburg was all over the place in terms of what would be called progressive. You know, oh, yeah, politics. Ginsburg, his whole life, he was writing political poems and being involved with political causes and... Uh, going to Chicago in the summer of 68 and sitting in, in Lincoln Park with his legs crossed and, uh, and homing and, and, and protesting against nuclear weapons in the, in the 1980s and going, uh, going to Nicaragua and, and, and meeting the Sandinistas and, and going what, what they used to call behind the Iron Curtain and making friends with with uh, Yevtushenko and Wojnarzenski and the Russian poets and, and going to Prague and, and being crowned the King of May and you know, uh, identification with people who are protesting uh, against authoritarianism in, in the Soviet bloc part of the world, yeah. So. Do you know if, did he ever refer to London himself in like, like 
Kerouac? I don't yeah, know any place where Allen Ginsberg referred to Jack Kerouac. To Jack London. Excuse me, to Jack London. He referred a lot to Jack Kerouac. Yes. 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 <laughs> no, that's, yeah. And so what, do you think also that he, um, the dynamic we talked about before, somebody who's an, basically an idealist who wants to change the world in a positive way and thinks it can be bettered and when it doesn't work in a real tangible way or in a satisfactory way, they become embittered. Did that happen, do you think? Uh, um, I don't think it did happen with, with Allen Ginsberg, no. Uh, there's a late poem that he wrote uh, that was it's called I'm a Prisoner of Allen Ginsberg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he was he became aware that he he read in public like 300 times a year. Yeah. I mean he was constantly traveling, reading, performing uh, and people uh, people would think well Allen Ginsberg is the beat poet and they wouldn't really get behind the the, the icon or, or the persona and he, so he felt that the the media had created uh, not who it wasn't who he was and so he had to behave and perform in according to ways that people expected him to behave and perform you're listening to a conversation with Jonah Raskin and Steve Heilig so maybe he didn't get disillusioned because he was around young people so much he also seemed to retain being relatively not material and not that way. I, I mean, I heard he gave away lots of money. He supported very modestly. Supported a lot. He he made money, but he gave it away to supporting a lot of people like Peter Orlovsky. Yeah. Well, the the line that I remember that reminds me of both of them is from you know somebody they both read Walt Whitman, which the, one of the famous lines in his Leaves of Grass is, do I contradict myself? Yes, I contradict myself. It basically says, so what? There's a lot of different yes. personas in me. I mean, yes. you have uh, Jack London saying that I have 20 different astral right. personalities going at once, you know, so right. I recognize this. And and Allen Ginsberg said things similar to that. that you know, these, yes, exactly. Lots of different personas with, with Allen Ginsberg. Okay, so two big authors, three, including him. So I think I ran, uh, uh, my other book, which you, I don't think you yeah. mentioned, or maybe not, is uh, a biography of Abby Hoffman. Oh, Abby Hoffman, yeah. So I should have read, written the, the Jack London first and then gone to Allen uh-huh. Ginsberg and then to Abby Hoffman. Right. Sort of would have been more chronological. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so let's have questions if you wish. To ask about any of this, please do. Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to ask about Martin Eden because I, I felt the same way that you do. I, I found that book to be extremely moving. But when when the Wolf House was burnt, when when did Martin Eden actually be um, written? Was it after Wolf House? Is before Wolf House. Yes, Wolf House Fire is in 1913. This first published 1909. Okay. So, yeah, I was just wondering what it was. And Martin Eden was a lot written while he was sailing uh, on his boat, the Snark, on this in this in the Pacific. That's that the book, the boat that bankrupted him. 
Yes, right. He got to Australia and sold it. it. Yeah, it cost a lot of money. Well, people have said, I mean, a boat is, the main purpose of a boat is to pour your money into it <laughs> before it sinks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Martin Eden, is, is a, it's a, I would say, it's, I know, great, the word great is, gets very overused, but it's a really great book. And it's a portrait of, of an artist uh, before Joyce wrote, you know, his portrait of an artist and uh, gives a picture of uh, of of life in bohemian and middle class bourgeois East Bay and San Francisco and he it, yeah it's just so emotionally moving. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask how you got interested in Jack London. Uh, yes. Okay. Good question. I uh, had an uncle um, who had a bookstore in New York, and uh, I used to stay at his house, and he had a library in his house, and I saw it when I was like a teenager. I saw a book on the shelf that was called The Iron Heel. title seemed in, an interesting title. I, what is an iron heel? I pulled it down, started reading it, and uh that's that was my introduction to Jacqueline. I didn't know at that time, I didn't know that he wrote The Call of the Wild or White Fang. Didn't know about those books. And then for a long time, I uh, when I was at college, I mostly read uh, what my teachers said that I was supposed to read. So I read a lot of Henry James, who, who was... Uh, you know, an earlier generation than than uh, Jack London, but I believe he died the same year, nineteen sixteen. Henry James and, and and Jack London, and really, in a lot of ways, they're very antithetical. Henry James and 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 Jack London. I mean, Henry, Henry James wouldn't have written about somebody named like Martin Eden, or he wouldn't have written about a dog. Or <laughs> and you kept reading him, though. You picked up other ones after that. It sounds like not, uh, not, not for a long time. Mm-hmm. Not really for a long time. And it really wasn't until like the hundredth anniversary of the publication of *The Call of the Wild*. That, that I read The Call of the Wild. I think that was in 2003. And I said, oh, God, this is remarkable. First of all, to get the idea of, like, making a dog the main character and, like, and seeing the world from a dog's point of view. And then there were also some very... There, there are parts of The Call of the Wild that I don't like, but I thought that there, there's some humor in it. You know, the first sentence is, like, is, Buck did not read the newspapers. You know, well... <laughs> Uh, okay, yes, dogs don't read newspapers, yes. <laughs> well, I mentioned this. I mean, I was, I did, I also didn't read a long time, but I read, you know, I picked up these two short, these novellas. I mean, before Adam, he puts himself into the persona of basically uh, Neanderthalian type. Actually, not, they're attacking him, but, you know, prehistoric man, his, yes. his ancient ancestor, and it begins with him saying that he actually channels these at some point, like he has dreams about falling and it's actually him reliving 2,000 generations back where he's falling out of trees, you know, and then fighting. And so, I mean, it's really extraordinary, the imagination that he does. And then the one about the epidemic decimating 
Yeah, you know, right. in San Francisco, I just thought, wow, you know, this guy, there was there was brilliance there. Absolutely. Yeah. Others? Yeah. A tumultuous oh, relationship with his wife. Tumultu- did he have a tumultuous relationship with his wife? The first one or the second? Or all the other women? <laughs> um, well, uh, new, very new, I guess you could call it, evidence has come out uh, that shows that uh, some of the books were Jack London wrote with Charmian, that she had a significant part in furnishing information. Like The Sea Wolf. Um, I've never, I have not looked at the manuscripts of the Sea Wolf, but I've read the letters that Jack wrote to Charmian just before the Sea Wolf was published when he was covering the war in Japan, Korea. And he said, the galleys, so you're going to get the galleys from the publisher and I want you to read, this is before they got married, I want you to read them and if there's anything you don't like, he says, cross it out, I won't kick. So he really he put the book in her hands. Um, he also said after his separation from his first wife, uh, if I ever marry again, my wife will have to be a really good typist. No, so <laughs> so so I mean she was a typist. Um, she was an editor. Uh, um, she she traveled just about every place when he went sailing on the snark. They went uh, they went to Hawaii together. Uh, they boxed. They had they had yes they had rules about he was not allowed to hit in certain places. You know, female anatomy. But she was game for just about everything. No. Made his match, as it were. So I, my first trouble, I'll say briefly, with the Jack London Foundation was that I said, I looked at the fire, uh, the 1913 fire, which they say was spontaneous combustion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, so... Right before the fire, uh, Jack's, his, his stepsister's husband was on the ranch and he threatened to shoot his wife. Mm-hmm. He had a gun and Jack London kicked him off the ranch and he filed assault charges against Jack, which were dropped. Seemed to me, this was right before... The fire seems to me he could have done it. And Jack London himself said, if I didn't think I would be happy in my house, I'd burn it down myself. Mm-hmm. Did you have a question, Matthew? Yeah, I, just, I was just, the night the wolf house burned down, I, that's what I wanted to know. And, you know, any, any, any conjecture or thoughts on that? I and mean, what effect did it have on Jack London? Uh, well, he died three years later. It does seem like it, his letters suggest that he was depressed. Charmian was depressed about it. it uh, I mean, they were, it was about a week before they were going to move in. Uh, he'd, uh, it, was, it was like really green architecture. Or 
redwood trees and boulders from the from, from right around there and and uh Italian craftsmen who are doing stonework and a beautiful place. I somebody told me if I wanted to see what it might look like, I should go to the Benbow Inn mm. oh. near Garberville, which I which I did see. So a lot you know, bigger, no, hmm? the Benbow's a lot bigger, I think. <laughs> huge. Yeah. It was a Wolf House was big. It was yeah, like, yeah, that you know, huge. Yes, sir. Yes, um, I wanted to mention a local connection when Charles Fox here in Bolinas was writing his novel, The Noble Enemy, which, among other things, has a bunch of guys trapped out in a blizzard. Uh, uh-huh. I, we were talking, and, and he mentioned what it was about. And I said, well, have you read To Build a Fire by Jack London? And he had not read it. Uh-huh. So he read it, and, and I think it had some part in that novel. Uh-huh. Uh, I think there is an episode in there about building a fire in, in the, in the right. prison. Yeah. And then also confirming what you said about his popularity in Russia. My father uh, read as a student in Odessa in probably 1916, uh, read the sequel. Yeah. Uh, All right. Uh, yeah. And now I wanted to ask you about his learning to write. Uh, was it totally just from reading other writers and, and doing it, or did he have any instruction, and did he have any mentors? Or? He had He had mentors. He... Went to grammar school. Uh, he got a, I think what they call today a high school equivalency. He went to UC Berkeley for one semester. He, his first wife uh, taught him a lot. Uh, he... <laughs> One of the places that, that, right, is this fact or is it part of the legend of Jack? Legend has it that he would go to Heinhold's Last Chance Saloon and read the dictionary there, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And he learned a lot lot by reading uh, uh, Herbert Spencer, um, uh, you know, on on rhetoric and grammar, so I'm trying to think if I can give it an example. Mark uh, Twain? Did he read? Uh, yes, he, yes, he read Mark Twain. He read Huckleberry Finn. Uh, he wrote, he did some early stories for his high school uh, magazine called The Aegis, in which he, they were spinoffs of, of Mark Twain with, with dialect and, and dialogue. Most writers would say, I mean, Hemingway included, you'd learn by doing, and he certainly did. I mean, he was, at some point, he was cranking out however many thousands of words a day, you know, and he just kept at it. So he entered a competition uh, that was sponsored by the San Francisco Morning Call, I believe, when he was, like, 17 years old. He had been on a sealing schooner to Japan, killing seals for fur. Um, he was a, what they called an able-bodied seedman, seedman. So he came, when he came back, he wrote a story about it called The Story of a Typhoon Off the Coast of Japan, which is also beautiful writing, um, influenced some by Herman Melville. At 17. At 17. He was 17. He won, a, he won the prize for $25, yeah. 
You, you can see he's already has real, this guy has talent, yeah. Say more about his, his short stories. That's what I remember as a Bay Area kid. I can remember in junior high, we, a class was assigned and read in class to build a fire mill and pulling jackets and sweaters on. But I don't know how yes. to find like, every short story I could get my hand on. And sort of what's, I mean, yes, White Fang and Call of the Wild, but sort of what's the opinion out there of those short stories? Uh, I would say there's a very high opinion of his, uh, what he called the Northland stories of, mm -hmm. that are set in the, in the ice and the snow, uh, where he has, he has a character who uh, appears again and again, I think you pronounce it Malamute, the Malamute mm -hmm. kid. Mm -hmm. uh, they're kind of like uh, frontier yarns and... and I mean, he's very, he's very aware, Jack London was very aware of like frontier literature and grew up reading James Fenimore Cooper. And so, he, I mean, he wrote also about the end of the frontier. The, the U.S. census said the frontier had ended in 1890. So mm -hmm. went, went to the Yukon because there, here was another frontier, different kind of frontier. And he was reading, reading Kipling. Also, people called him the Kipling of the North. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite uh, Jack London short stories is called The Apostate. Mm -hmm. And that was, a, you know, when I first read that, that was a word I didn't know. What, what is an apostate? I don't know. So, uh, you, yes, you, you, you read it. And I, it's uh, probably autobiographical. It's about a boy, a young man whose name is, is uh, Johnny. And he lives in this sort of working class, poor family. And... He's got, uh, there's a mother there and there's no father and his, he has to go off and work in the factory. And he hates, he hates going off to work in the factory. It gives you, it's very, it's very gritty and gives you a feel for, uh, for snapshot of, of, of working class life as a, as a boy. And so in the, in, in the, uh, well, in the late 20s, early 30s, they called that uh, proletarian literature. Um, literature about the working class. Uh, um, so, and then at the end of the book, he decides that he's, he, he's, he doesn't want to work. He doesn't want to be with his family. He doesn't want the reg regiment, regimentation. So he... He goes to the railroad tracks, and when a train comes by, he jumps on the train, and he he goes away, and he feels that he's got his freedom. Any others? Intersection with him and Robert Service? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Some similarity, don't you? Well, for sure. He had a yeah. Malamute kid, too. Oh, okay. Yeah, I understood that he set himself a limit of like 10,000 words a day and that he did not rewrite. He, he would take it from the beginning to the end and then he would move on to his next book or his next project. He, he did not rewrite or I don't know who edited his work or what the story was. Um, this is a Jack London... People argue and discuss this. How many words did he actually write a day? Mm. And <laughs> uh, I know that he 
Well, it does seem from all the evidence that I've seen he, that he wrote The People of the Abyss, his account of homelessness and hungry people in London, like around 1900, that he, he wrote hmm, 63,000 words, or he typed 63,000 words in 30 days. Mm. No, like, kind of like, like Jack Kerouac. So, but it, it, it varied, like with Martin Eden. I've been to the Huntington Library, which has all, most of the manuscripts and, and his archives. And with Martin Eden, he actually, he plotted out the novel of who the characters were and what the main scenes were going to be. Uh, so he knew where he was going. And then, and then also when, it, when the book... Um, was typeset and it came back from the printer. You can see where in his own handwriting, he went through and he made changes. He added a word, he took something out. So he was revising at least some of the work. I, 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 don't, think, I don't think he was doing it for all of it. A lot of his newspaper work, well, I think I mentioned, you know, he went magazine version and, and hardback and paperback, like with The Seawolf, magazine version one thing then then it was going to go into the book for he made changes in the magazine version before it went into the book version and then when the book version went into the paperback he made changes again so he so there's a lot of revision there that's going on is there a good film version in your estimation of any of his work um hmm. Not that I know of. There's a lot of, there's eight different versions of the Seawolf. You can see uh, Edward G. Robinson as, as Wolf Larson. <laughs> okay. You don't sound like you're recommending it, though. Uh, not really. I don't know any good movie versions of Jack London. Right. Um, just in closing, so the, this one, the end is lover of beauty. The last section you have captive of beauty here. What does this mean? What was his, his relationship to beauty or what was it? Well, like asking? the passage that you read from, uh, uh, from Martin Eden, it's like, it's very beautiful writing. He, he, well, he liked beautiful places, natural surroundings including uh, Hawaii and Glen Ellen. He liked beautiful women. He liked to definitely be around beautiful women. Uh, he wanted to live in a... His essay about, the, about Wolf House was called The House Beautiful. He wanted to live in a beautiful house. Some of that he got from the Pre-Raphaelites and William Morris and um, beautiful, beautiful things. So after all, he was just a man. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, thank you very, very much, much for coming here today, and thank you all. You've been listening to a conversation with Jonah Raskin and Steve Heilig. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit tns.commonweal.org for more podcast episodes and information on future events. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook, Vimeo, and YouTube. Thank you for joining us.